when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately clump bug bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Why is there no introduction today? I actually abandoned an attempt to write an introduction to this episode because in trying to mimic the windy, cliche-ridden, torturous prose of Eumaeus, I came to understand that in fact it's very difficult to write very badly very well, and instead found myself writing very badly very badly, which unfortunately doesn't follow the mathematical rule in which a negative multiplied by a negative results in a positive, but rather a different mathematical rule, not wholly unlike the calculation in Ithaca that somehow ends up requiring Bloom to live to the age of 83,300 and to have been born in the year 81,396 BC, by which the sentences I was writing appeared to be charting a path of exponential very badness. So instead of inflicting <laughs> such nonsense on our already afflicted listeners, I will instead rely on a tried and tested formula. Which tried and tested formula? Welcome to Bloomcast. Uh, good to um, be back. Episode 8. Um, Here before we, are. we launch ourselves into Eumaeus, um, our listeners will have just um, heroically made their way through the four episodes of Circe, um, which oh. were recorded down to the wire in our library um, a week and a half ago uh, with the Shakespeare and Company table readers. Uh, quite a, an intense um, emotional experience. Lex, you took on a huge uh, role in that as our heroic narrator um i was just wondering before we we we, we get into the, the grist of this episode how are you how are you yeah <laughs> how are you and what, what effect did it did it have on your understanding of that episode mm. on your appreciation of of cersei yeah the, the the nice thing about um forcing oneself to stage an unstageable play is that the stakes are kind of low <laughs> <laughs> As we said at the beginning of the recording, like it, what we're doing is 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 technically impossible. So mm -hmm. that we we actually uh, ended up, I think, um, kind of rocking and rolling through it. I, I was um, impressed by a couple of things. The first, um, how much fun it was uh, to divvy up the roles, especially among some of our um, friends who were not at all, and there were no trained actors in the room, mm -hmm. as far as I know, but who are you know poets and ne'er-do-wells of various stripes and um <laughs> some of whom ended up being hilarious comic yeah. comic actors mm -hmm. uh, and poets and ne'er-do-wells or sluts and ragamuffins, <laughs> sluts and as, ragamuffins. as they are described in um, Cersei itself <laughs> so so that was number one was how how what fun it was and how much i'm looking forward to doing kind of radio play um you know type uh type uh work in the future hopefully with this cast of players and hopefully alice will open for will hire jo will, will join us <laughs> next time around um second was how much fun it was to make an and objects mm. speak that yes. was one of our kind of mm. light motifs of of Circe was you know the soap um a capital couple bloom and I he brightens the earth I polish the sky uh one of my favorite lines in the book and uh, Heather Hartley um a poet and ne'er-do-well I think she would she would <laughs> happily assume or at least a, a flaneuse of, mm. of the first order um was our we became kind of as we went our designated uh voice of the inanimate and it was very funny mm. um so I, I enjoyed that part. And then what do we learn about Circe? I mean, let me tell you, it's, it's a very tempting with such a long chapter to go fast, mm -hmm. especially given the play form where you where you kind of your your eye kind of darts down the page. At least mine does when I'm when I'm reading uh, a play and 
by forcing by reading it out loud, you force yourself to slow down. Right. And so there were lots of little intricate Easter eggs that Joyce that Joyce put in in these exchanges, uh, you know, between him and his and his grandfather uh, Virag, between him and and um, and Bella Cohen, the, the courtroom scene mm-hmm. with the speeches from the society ladies. I mean, there, there are so many wonderful um, wonderful bits of Circe that I think you know one could get sort of uh, saturated mm-hmm. by you know page one hundred and twenty of the, yes. of the chapter. <laughs> um, but I I had a delight. And I hope our listeners have as much fun listening as we had yeah. putting it on. Adam, what did you learn? Um, well, I firstly I learned how bloody difficult it is to record a uh, an audio play <laughs> with limited equipment and um, sirens going past outside. So I want to thank our listeners firstly for their tolerance of all the creaks and the bangs and uh, the interference. But beyond that, um, it just it just deepened and enriched my uh, understanding of the episode. Uh, you were just talking about the society ladies. Uh, one thing that I just hadn't really clocked before was, um, so when uh, the name you had particular pleasure pronouncing, Cunty Kate, <laughs> um, was in, and you suddenly said, oh no, hang on, actually, you to Octavia, my colleague who was reading uh, it, you said, actually, no, part of the joke here is that Cunty Kate is actually an incredibly well-spoken... The poshest person. Yeah, the the poshest person you can imagine. (laughs) And that was something I had completely missed. And, you know, this was probably my now fourth reading of Circe. And you realise how funny, actually, (laughs) Joyce can be. 100%. Um, And I think it's one of those things that, yeah, can sometimes get lost in the sort of... The reverence given to Ulysses and the difficulty of making... The the maelstrom of words and... yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, that... This man had a wicked, very sort of erudite, mm. but also very silly sense of humor. Absolutely. And that really comes out when mm. the when Cersei is read. I out. think it comes out in Ithaca as well. And I think it comes yes. out almost as we'll see, because the form is so serious and precise, mm. the, the silliness of, of Ithaca is the first thing I loved about it. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's head on to a bit of correspondence. We've had a few people write in this week. So a big hello to Peter Collins, who writes, Hi, long-time listener, first-time caller. Hello, Peter. I'm a school librarian in Sheffield and have been obsessed with Ulysses since my undergraduate days and have been rereading it this year for obvious reasons. I have a question to ask. That is, what happens next? I think I know where Stephen is heading, but what about Molly and Bloom? Thank you so much for the podcast. It has been an utter joy to hear. Well, that's very kind. Thank first you. of all, thank, thank you, Peter you. Collins. Mm. Um, where what happens next? Where do we go next? Well, if we haven't been explicit about this, this is the time to be explicit about it. We'll be celebrating Bloom's Day at Shakespeare and Company from three p.m. to six p.m. The sixteenth of June, in case the sixteenth. We June. haven't hammered that Thursday, the sixteenth of June, Thursday, the 16th as of Thursday, June. as it was Thursday in the book. Oh, right. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is very exciting. And then um, you are all invited both on Zoom. So if you have been listening from afar and you want to tune in for the final episode, which is say episode 10 on the 16th, um, either you can tune in on Zoom or you can come in person to the American Library in Paris, which is right in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower. Um, So if this is your first time coming to Paris, it is not a bad way to spend a day. You'll be spending it first next to Notre Dame. And then possibly walking along or riding a bike along <laughs> the Seine um, to the seventh, where the library is, um, and first perhaps in the fifth by the Irish Cultural Centre, where James mm. Joyce lived mm-hmm. and um, where he finished uh, finished writing the novel mm-hmm. to Notre Dame and on to the climactic meeting with the Eiffel Tower. 
So that's that's uh, where we will be. And then to answer your question, what happens next? We're actually just going to wait <laughs> and reserve all of our speculation for that final episode. And we encourage all of our listeners. So we have about 2000 listeners per episode and we only hear from some of you. And we really, really encourage you. This is this is your final chance to to write in and send Ask in a anything. question. Ask. Mm. Yeah. Ask us anything. Anything Ulysses related or just anything? <laughs> I mean, seriously, it was a, was a trip relations. down the rabbit hole of, of Adam's subconscious. So if you want to know about Adam's teenage years, I think this could be a great time <laughs> to find out more. Ask us anything. We look forward to hearing from you. Visibly uh, blushing, Adam. So that's um, Ulysses at ShakespeareandCompany.com. Um, and AmericanLibraryInParis.org. So another bit of correspondence uh, from Mathieu Mesler, um, or Mesler. Uh, thanks for writing us. Uh, here we go. Uh, dear Bloomcast members, I am a bachelor student in comparative literature and English, and I'm currently starting to write my bachelor's thesis on Ulysses. First of all, I'd like to thank you for your great work. Join the Bloomcast very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mathieu. I find it brilliant how you connect first reading impressions with academic work on the subject while also finding space to talk about historical, cultural, intertextual contexts. Very kind. My thesis, he says, will probably be about oral narration in Ulysses and how its use can make the work more accessible. He finds it remarkable that um, given that the work follows and also breaks with the tradition of, of Homeric bards and also Irish bards, uh, that is celebrated with public readings every uh, year in front of Shakespeare and Company and at the Irish Cultural Center. Mm -hmm. um, and in Dublin, was, of course. And in Dublin and in New York and in many places around the world. I was wondering, Matthew finishes, if you have any ideas at all about this subject, the subject of oral, oral narration, or if you could recommend any books that would help with my research, I'm also going to attend Bloomsday for the first time this year and would like to ask if there's anything that I absolutely have to do <laughs> while being there. I think the answer Apart to that from one... being there. <laughs> I think, well, one answer, Matthew, is that we would love to have you read um, mm, your favorite section of Ulysses and come and find me um, probably around uh, 2.45 or so. We'll be, um, we'll be uh, fleshing out our... Um, our plans for the, the readings for the afternoon. So and don't uh, worry, Lex is not hard to find. I'm <laughs> difficult <laughs> to locate. Um, <sighs> but your question about oral narration, we, we referred in a, in a past episode to um, the works of a, of a scholar uh, in the early 20th century named Milman Perry, mm -hmm. who was a real pioneer in showing, and he, he was um, something of a literary anthropologist. He went to the Balkans and lived in um, villages where, you, where the culture uh, was still... Um, very much on based around oral storytelling and mm -hmm. and got to know very famous uh, you know renowned bards um, mm -hmm. in I think he was in well was in Yugoslavia or, or just before I guess Austria Austria Hungary and um, and Perry is he died very young he he published his his kind of this pioneering work um, I think in his late twenties uh, and he passed away but there's been recently some work on him and on his work a book about him that came out and I, I can't remember the title but it was if you if you google him and uh, i think it was in the times Larry supplement maybe a new york review of books um and it takes up this subject of 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 oral um narration and how understanding the oral art of storytelling gives us new insight into both homer's poems and 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 um lots of other works of literature that are now more read than spoken mm -hmm. aloud. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, most of ancient literature is something I found out um, when I was doing my PhD on, on um, Roman philosophy and, and Cicero. Uh, most of ancient literature was written to be uh, spoken aloud. And in fact, it was very rare that you just sat and read. Mm -hmm. If you were, an, uh, if you were a, a gentleman or gentlewoman, 
um, you had things read to you. And so if you see ancient texts, this first thing that you most people notice when they look at an ancient papyrus is, well, where the hell is the punctuation? Yeah. <laughs> and the spaces and between the, words. And there's no spaces, no spaces between words, no. And, you know, the things like periods and commas and, and, quota, and quotation marks were invented in the Middle Ages. Um, and so uh, and so orality um, was a, a huge part of of Western literary tradition and non-Western as well uh, until very recently. That, one of my favorite statistics on this, and I'll finish, is do you guys, can you guys guess the year? Maybe I said this before, the year in which uh, more human beings on the planet were literate than illiterate. Oh, great question. I'm, it's going to be more recent than we would imagine. I would say something like 2000. Oh, wow. Okay. That's more recent okay. than, than, than the truth. It was... Uh, yeah, guess 1920. So halfway in between. So it's it was 1964, I think, wow. Um, wow. Um, was the first time in all human history where more mm-hmm. people could read than, than not. And that still meant that 49% of, yeah, of yeah, humanity yeah. was literate. And, and uh, so I think this this oral um, oral narration topic, Matthew, is a very rich one. And I wish you luck with your thesis. Matthew, I'd point you in two directions. One would be to look to St. Augustine's confessions because there's a brilliant description of somebody reading silently to himself and... Augustine at that time was quite shocked by um, this site. And the second thing I would say is keep listening to the episode because we are going to assault narrative from all angles and possibly uh, oral narration as a form might emerge uh, Mm. victorious after the attack on written narrative. And just a couple of things to add. Um, Just interestingly, the point you made about lack of punctuation, Lex, of course, in our final uh, discussion of the final episode, our discussion of Penelope, of course, a lack of punctuation yeah. is something which is um, is un- certainly going to <laughs> going to come up. Um, the other thing which I, I read recently and I can't remember where, which probably means it was on Twitter, um, <laughs> was somebody thought somebody said that apparently if Ulysses is read as the creator intended, um, it should last exactly twenty four hours. Mm. Um, and I think one thing that's just really like that interesting... stupid TV show with Kiefer Sutherland, 24. Indeed, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, I, well, that was less than 24 hours because you accounted for ad breaks. Good um, point, <laughs> very good point. But... Um, Leopold if, Bloom would very much have made that point, I think. <laughs> but I wonder, because I, I, I know, you know, there are there are certainly recordings of Joyce reading from Finnegan's Wake. Wake. Right. Um, I'm not sure if there are ones available from uh, Ulysses, but... Uh, one thing I will try and do once all of this is over is to um, tally the length of all the recordings and see how close That's to yeah. um, 24 hours oh, yeah. um, we come. And that actually segues nicely into our final piece of correspondence. Um, now, while you guys slack off between each of our uh, fortnightly uh, broadcast recordings, video games, yeah. um, I'm actually soliciting the recordings, proof listening to the recordings, editing the sound, refining things uploading them, releasing them. Um, and sadly, one of our scheduled readers for Eumaeus had to drop out uh, at the last minute. Um, and I was a bit worried because it meant that it was probably going to have to be me to read the episode. Uh, and Lex can testify God forbid. from uh, our Circe table read that that was not necessarily the uh, <laughs> something one might... I would say, Adam, you're the most self-deprecating of our readers, (laughs) but certainly not the worst. Um, (laughs) But certainly the best. (laughs) But then somewhat somewhat serendipitously, um, I received an email from um, somebody called Stephanie, who happened to be the publicist of a huge Ulysses fan and podcast listener, um, a man called Carter Bays. 
Now, that name may not be immediately familiar to you, but I'm pretty sure his work is because Carter is one of the is a co-creator of one of the biggest, if not the biggest sitcom of the 2010s, How I Met Your Mother. Oh, oh my God. Um, and so, um, and in fact, so Stephanie's email said, you know, Carter is a big Ulysses fan. He loves to show up. If there's any slots left, he, he'd mm. love to participate. <laughs> and this came a few days before our reader dropped out. Um, mm. I wrote back saying, oh, we don't have anything at the moment. And then was able to write back two days later saying, okay, if he could do it for me in the next few days. Um, and Carter was able within the space of about four days to receive his text, record his text, submit his text. And it is an absolutely superb reading. Um, in addition, however, um, I had an email from Carter the, the other day um, and I'm just going to read it to you now. And he says, hi, Adam, it's Carter Bays. I believe you've been corresponding with my publicist, Stephanie. I just wanted to reach out personally to say how much fun I had recording the section of Eumaeus and to Thank you for letting me participate. I hope I did an acceptable job. Now, I can reassure Carter he did an extraordinary job and our listeners will be able to hear that in the next few days. He says, it was great fun giving voice to all those bad cliches and tortured syntax, though I'm a little bit worried it came too naturally. <laughs> anyway, I'm also reaching out because I've loved listening to all the readings and the accompanying podcast. If there's a big world map where you are, you can stick a pushpin in Pasadena, California and know that Ulysses is playing in at least one little car mm. on the crowded LA freeway. All my best, Carter. Um, and it did Lovely. send me back to um, when I watched How I Met Your Mother um, back in, I guess it was a mid, the mid-2010s. I think it started in 2014. Often been described as the 21st century epic. Well, <laughs> one thing it did make me think of was how, as a series, it is no stranger to the idea of retrospective mm. arrangement. Mm. Um, I mean, it certain, yeah. certainly mm. plays mm. with the, um, the, the sort of the cliches of narrative in a way that I think a lot of mainstream sitcoms yeah. mm. um, didn't, you know. I think it's, mm. it's certainly sort of much more innovative with the televisual form than, um, yeah, than, than, than most sitcoms mm. dare to be. Mm. And now it's, uh, I'm wondering, having received this email from Carter, thinking of going back and looking at it and seeing if we can pick up any uh, yes, any hints references. of Joyce across the... I just can't uh, wait the for, in about 15, 20 years, when Neil Patrick Harris becomes, you know, the, the eminence grise that can play Leopold Bloom in the next uh, upcoming movie. You know, he's, he is kind of an everyman, um, Neil Patrick Harris. Don't forget, Leopold Bloom's in his early 40s. I think... Uh, well, but Neil Patrick Harris looks as if he's about 25. Uh -huh. So um, I think he still has a bit of the Doogie Howser in him. Yes. Um, but yeah, he could play Stephen Dedalus tomorrow if he wanted to. But I, I'd love to see Neil Patrick Harris uh, play Leopold Bloom. Okay. Well, Carter, if you can yeah, put Carter, in a word. Maybe you can write, you can write a series. <laughs> Directed for us. by Scorsese. You know, for well, I was going to say, I mean, you know, this, this, we've got a correspondent in LA, like your obsession with the, uh, the I know. Departed and Scorsese. I, know. I, I don't know. know, Carter, if you know. William Monaghan. <laughs> you know yeah. Again, if you could just uh, put in a word, that would be. Um, Please do. But anyway, I just wanted to give a big shout out to Carter because he Save really turned day. in a superb performance, as you say, Save the Day, uh, and Eumaeus will go out as planned um, with, this, with this wonderful edition. So thank you. Thank Thanks, you, Carter. Merci. Okay, Eumaeus, on which subject? You are recapping? Yes, and I've realised it's my last recap. Oh, oh, okay. oh, oh a go. series of last. Here we go. He, he, he like he like he pulls the sheet of ah! papers out. He says, "Get ready, troops." Stop no, actually, I, ironically, it's probably the <sighs> chapter of Ulysses which least requires a recap, in as much as I think it's probably narratively the mm. most straightforward of all of the eighteen episodes. Um, so I'm not going to put no. Uh, um, <laughs> So I'm gonna. I'm so gonna, look I it up going, online. I am <laughs> going to exactly. Sparks note have a very good section on it. Mm. Um, okay, 
It's about a quarter to 1am on Friday the 17th of June, picking up almost immediately after the whirlwind of Circe, and Bloom is leading Stephen to a cabman shelter to sober up. As Bloom is dispensing advice to Stephen on various subjects, prostitution, jiu-jitsu, the choice of his drinking partners, they encounter Corley, who explains that he's both out of work and out of cash. Stephen suggests Corley apply for his apparently now vacated teaching post, and... After, Corley asks Bloom if he can put a word in with one Blazes Boylan for a job, if only. The two young men converse at a short distance from Bloom, a conversation that ends with Stephen lending Corley money for a place to sleep. It's then we learn that there's been some falling out between Stephen and Buck and Haynes, who've abandoned their flatmate and caught the last train back to Sandy Cove. Bloom and Stephen then have a brief discussion about Stephen's father, in which Bloom tells him, with what justification we're unsure, that Simon Daedalus is proud of his son. After observing a brief exchange between some Italians, which Bloom assumes is something is about something noble and beautiful, but which Stephen tells him is actually about money, they reach the cabman's shelter. The place is filled with a, quote, miscellaneous collection of waifs and strays and other nondescript specimens, much as Lex described our Cersei table readers a moment ago, mm. and is tended by Skin the Goat, a notorious and real-life Irish nationalist. Bloom orders coffee and a bun. Also in the shelter is DB, or WB, depending on your edition, Murphy, a red-bearded sailor who's just returned to Dublin after seven years at sea and who spins a series of dubious yarns about that time. This sets Bloom off on an extended reflection about a concert tour he might organise that would take in a whole series of English seaside towns, including my childhood town of, quote, beautiful Bournemouth, and he starts <laughs> to think of how and via whom he might promote it. Murphy tells a few more stories and declares his desire to settle down. He mentions a son, who he guesses is 18 by now, and shows off his tattoo of an anchor, the number 16, and a face, the grimace of which changes depending on the positioning of his skin. <laughs> Stephen and Bloom then have a conversation about religion, in which it becomes increasingly clear that the two men are operating on vastly different and perhaps irreconcilable planes of erudition. As Bloom tries to convince Stephen to drink some coffee, he asks him whether he believes the sailor's stories, during which exchange we discover that Bloom believes Murphy is recently out of prison rather than returned from the sea. There's then a discussion of Irish nationalism that allows Bloom to express his political philosophy of anti-violence, anti-intolerance, and to declare that, quote, a revolution must come on the due instalments plan. Note debt and credit at work again. Bravo. He then dismisses arguments made by anti-Semites and declares his support for a universal basic income. Stephen makes Bravo. Few, Bravo, indeed. <laughs> Stephen makes a few points of his own about Irish nationalism that dismay Bloom, leading to the young man to propose that, since, quote, we can't change the country, let us change the subject. Mm. Waiting for the tension to dissipate, Bloom reads the newspaper, seeing the result of the Gold Cup and the piece about Dignam's funeral, which mistakenly claims that Stephen was present. There's a chat about Parnell, during which Bloom takes out a photo of Molly, apparently using it to either impress Stephen or to entice him back to his home, for what exactly is an open question. Bloom is keen for Stephen to come back to Eccles Street with him and, since there's no way back to Sandy Cove, offers him a cup of cocoa as an enticement and suggesting that the walk back in the fresh air will do him some good at least. So the two men leave the shelter arm in arm, significant, as Patrick Hastings points out, because Stephen has previously rejected both Cranley's and Buck's arms, but accepts Bloom's with a soon-to-be-resonant declaration of yes. As they leave, Bloom entertains a fantasy about the chatter Stephen moving into Eccles Street would cause and advises Stephen to cut ties with Buck. The chapter ends with a cab horse loosing, quote, three smoking globes of turds. End quote. And end. <laughs> it's a great description. And end recap, in fact. End recap. Beautifully done. We'll miss your recaps, Adam. Mm -hmm. You went out, went out with a boom, with an L boom. Um, so Very good. One, uh, <laughs> one question I had in reading this is, why is this chapter... Um, 
lady, gentleman, why is it so badly written? Why does it seem so... What What is Joyce... Is he just kind of having a go? Is he really tired? What is he really tired? <laughs> what this chapter is, is has nowhere near the the ease and felicity yeah. of of some of the other third person narrated uh, episodes. So, Adam, what do you what do you think? Okay, so I'm going to begin um, by reading quite an extended paragraph, actually, from my friend and hopefully now yours, dear listeners, uh, Patrick Hastings, um, who gives quite a nice summary of the sort of differing opinions on this subject. So, Patrick writes. The style of the Eumaeus episode identified by Joyce in the schema as, quote, narrative old, mm. has elicited divergent critical opinions. Marilyn French considers the strained sentences to reflect the tension between over-eager Bloom and disengaged Stephen. In French's reading, the tedious style of Eumaeus serves as, quote, an obscurant. We have wanted to see what would happen when Bloom and Stephen finally came together. Here they are and nothing happens. End quote. Richard Elman claims that the episode, quote, struggles clumsily for the right expression, close quote, while Stanley Sultan describes it as, quote, the attempt of a poorly educated man to impress by discoursing with sophisticated eloquence, close quote. David Heyman calls the episode, quote, a tired, threadbare, flatulent narrative larded with commonplaces, whereby the arranger conveys with surprising accuracy the drink and fatigue dulled sentiments of both protagonists. And then Patrick writes... Make it sound like a bad thing. <laughs> well, we, we will come on to that. Um, Patrick writes, in my opinion, the most useful understanding of the style of this episode relies on the Uncle Charles principle, which, quote, entails writing about someone much as that someone would choose to be written about. Applying this concept to the current episode, mm. Eumaeus is written in the style that Mr. Bloom would have employed if he himself had written the episode. Indeed, Bloom later announces his intention to compose exactly this piece of literature, Quote, suppose he were to pen something out of the common groove as he fully intended doing at the rate of one guinea per column. My experience is, let us say, in a cabman's shelter. Mm. So rather than condemning Eumaeus as stilted, over-ornamented prose with garbled syntax and imprecise diction, we might instead consider the episode's use of Bloom's own literary style, flawed as it may be, as Joyce's ultimate celebration of Bloom himself, flawed as he may be. Mm. Um, so I think that's a really nice kind of summary from Patrick, but also um, I think there's something... About in his um, in his understanding, which really which really chimed with me, and which threw me back to um, something which we've evoked in several of these episodes, which came from a discussion I had with George Saunders about his book uh, mm. "Swim in the Pond in the Rain," in which he talks about how through the process of drafting and redrafting and redrafting, writing better and better and better, also makes the writer think better and better and become better and better as if there's a kind of there can be a kind of a moral correlation if you like between working and reworking drafting and redrafting improving the quality of writing and improving the quality of the human doing the writing Mm. Uh, and I think there's something really fascinating about that idea but I do wonder here if Joyce is making a different but connected and perhaps even slightly contrasting point which is perhaps something to do with breaking the link between being a good writer, a good artist, and being a good person. Um, because I think, as Patrick points out, you know, this is, in some sense, a celebration of of Bloom and his slightly clumsy, slightly fumbled, slightly, let's say... Half-formed. Half-formed approach, um, approach to the world. Two-eyed, but half-formed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so I think there's what perhaps Joyce might be saying with this episode and why he has written it in this, why he's overwritten it perhaps in this style, is he wants to say that maybe Bloom, the limits to Bloom's capacity for expression are by no means 
a limit on his capacity mm. for goodness. Yeah, and that, that takes us back to something we had we talked about in an in earlier episode about um, Joyce failing where Bloom succeeds. I mean, that, mm. that Joyce's own family, um, especially his daughter, um, Lucia, uh, you know, later talked about how absent a father he was and that, you know, how he would prioritize having his, you know, piano and his opera tickets above, you know, keeping up a full kitchen cabinet for for his wife mm-hmm. and, and and kids. Um, and, and that put that question in mind, but sort of asked in the opposite way, does writing a good character come at the cost of yourself being a worse husband and father? Mm-hmm. And, it, and, mm-hmm. and I think in Joyce's case, you could make the you could make the, the argument that it did. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also see how, in a sense, Stephen and, and Bloom complete each other. That if this if this chapter, I love this, and I never heard that before, Adam. That the, the idea that Eumaeus is written by Bloom, mm-hmm. which I, now I completely am convinced by. But if we if we take that a step further and say, it it shows that this is not so fun to read, and that and that, in a sense, the rest of the book has been written by Stephen, uh-huh. right? So the the oh, other seventeen chapters yeah, yeah, were pretty yeah. obviously written by Stephen, <laughs> and so and so in a sense, you. In order to fully appreciate the book, you need both, right? You yes. need Bloom as a character, but you need Stephen as a writer. Mm. And so that, that both of them are essential ingredients to making Ulysses mm. the, the masterpiece that it is. And just to pick up on that point of it not being fun to read, actually, I mean, I'm not sure that's entirely true. Is it like I as as much as it is full of cliches and it's a bit, it's a bit, you know, it's a bit, it's there's a lot of sentences which which are quite fumbled. After Oxen of the Sun. Yeah, after true. Circe, after some of what our readers have gone through, I actually think in reading this as a certain relief as well. Like mm-hmm. you may be in, you know, less gifted hands, but you're in perhaps slightly more generous hands. Yeah. See, I think um, it's not. I would, I would really push back against this idea of who's writing it mm-hmm. because it, for me, it's not about who's expressing themselves. It's about the form. Um, in which they're expressing themselves. So it's not necessarily the limits of Stephen's expression or of Bloom's expression. I think what Joyce is alerting us to here are the limits of narrative, the limits of narrative in the early 20th century. Mm. Um, my critical position on this episode is a Bicatian one. Um, I was very... shock. <laughs> I was very, very sensitive to all of the attacks, very subtle but consistent attacks all the way through on storytelling so these I just sprinkle these through. Um, he describes this lurid, lurid story narrated. He talks about the fictitious addressee. He talks about him sailing under false colours. The historic story that's full of sweet nothings. And he highlights um, specific devices of narrative that are used also. So denouement in media race. And he says nine times out of ten, it was a case of tabernacles. And so... What is this doing or what is it doing for Beckett? Um, This creates the space for essentially what comes next in response to weary storytellers, fractured stories who reject uh, description, signification, and essentially narratives, arbitrary subjectivity and artifice, but also, in my opinion, more urgently, um, it alerts us in this episode to the dangers of the interests and the attractions and the roteness of narrative. Mm. And so this comes later in the century um, in Beckett's trilogy. So Malloy, Malone dies and the unnameable. I just found some a few quotes this morning from, from the trilogy. Um, so in, similarly, just as 
Joyce is talking about kind of in media race and denouement, Beckett writes, a beginning, a middle and an end, a handsome little sum or else the long sonata of the dead. Hmm. He has characters say things like, perhaps I'm inventing something, perhaps I'm embellishing. He has characters who in the middle of description cut themselves off and say, must I describe her? Must I describe it? Mm -hmm. Um, And then kind of most, I would say, evilly or devilishly, he has a character who says, um, again, he's in the middle, he's in the middle of describing something and he says, or he catches himself, am I remembering it in the interest of narrative? How can the interest of narrative shape the way that we are passing on a story for posterity, shape the way that we see the world? And so in its most violent break with narrative, I mean, at least in the trilogy, it gets more violent as throughout Beckett's career. He has a character, again, cut himself off in the middle of description and says, but to hell with all the fucking scenery. And there's this really brilliant uh, French philosopher who uh, responds to particularly unnameable, which is possibly Beckett's most intense assault on um, the narrative that we'd find in a novel. So in an essay called Where Now, Who Now, writing about the unnameable, Blanchot writes... In what he understood to be the profound culmination of the trilogy's experiment, there is, Blanchot wrote, no longer any question of characters under the reassuring protection of a personal name. Even in the formless present of an interior monologue, he continued, there is no longer any question of narrative. Indeed, he concluded, what was narrative has become conflict. So I think we see the conflict of narrative, the interests of narrative starting to break apart here. And I don't think, I think it is funny, but I also think um, more urgently, if we think about the narratives of the 20th century that lead up to the Second World War, mm. that lead to um, reconciliation after the Second World War, um, both writers are thinking about what can narrative do uh, at a society-wide level. Mm. And that's something which is explicitly happening in this chapter with regards um uh, Murphy, the sailor, as well, because exactly. I mean, what, what we have—the um, name of one of Beckett's first novels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what we have is a man essentially telling lies within a fiction, and I think that sort of Joyce is intentionally creating that that juxtaposition. So, you know, Joyce, what what we've just read, sort of eight hundred pages of, is a fictional tale of a day in Dublin. Or you know another way to put that is it's it's a lie, right? That's it. Didn't nothing. happen. It didn't happen. Murphy's stories are lies. They didn't happen, and yet that does not. I'm I'm not entirely convinced that Joyce is believes there's a moral equivalence between the two. But I suppose the question is, if there's not, what is it that sets the um, the I guess the 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 activity of writing Ulysses apart from because it's not it's not a straightforward narrative. And that is the... Well, I think he, I think both would agree that if you're writing straightforward narrative, you're lying. Mm. Well, I mean, I remember um, a British professor of mine once said, you Americans don't understand irony. Um, and the difference between irony and a lie is, is, is the wink, right? That uh-huh. um, an irony, you say something that you know isn't true, but you also know that your listener knows isn't true. Mm. And that's what makes it funny, mm. um, which then, you know, we nodded and took notes and probably became very ironic. Um, <laughs> and, and I wonder if that's one of the differences, right? Is where if, if the audience essentially is suspending their disbelief and going along with you for the ride, which is arguably what, what the novel form evolved to do mm. um 
then uh, it's not a lie. It's a it's a potentially um, life improving story. Bloom actually, interestingly, in in Ithaca, um, mentions how he looked to Shakespeare for for wisdom mm-hmm. for instruction, sure. and and so I think Joyce is also. Um, you know, winking at us mm-hmm. uh, in that, you know, don't look to this story to improve your life. And yet, mm-hmm. at least in this reading of it, I've seen mm-hmm. from your, Alice, your, your evocation of, of nationalism and the dangers of nationalism and the... And the... But that's, that would be, a na- that would fall under this argument about narrative. Na- na- nationalism as a narrative, as a written narrative. It, what, narrative is one-eyed. That's what I would say. Well, I, I, I think another, yes. I mean, some, some narratives are very one-eyed and, and lead to enormous pain and, and violence. But I, exactly, I think... Exactly, exactly. So how, so how can the form of narrative be too wide? I think that's what this, this episode is asking. I guess through dialogue. I mean, I guess, you know, when, when Bloom himself, you know, in, in, to Stephen is, is talking about, um, you know, of course, you must look at both sides of the question. It's hard to lay down any hard and fast rules as to right and wrong. But room for improvement all round, there certainly is through every country. Uh, though every country, they say, our own distressful included, has the government it deserves. I, I mean, I think this is linking what Joyce maybe thinks about literature to what he thinks about democracy, that there is no one authoritative story. And anyone who's tried mm-hmm. to tell you that they have the one authoritative story mm-hmm. is lying mm-hmm. to you and mm-hmm. probably wants you to do some terrible things that mm-hmm. you wouldn't do otherwise. Um, but you can't you can't expel narrative from human society because narrative created human society mm-hmm. that, you know, before there was the ability to, to talk about past and future, um, we didn't have things like right and wrong moral mm-hmm. norms come from our ability to tell stories. And so if, if you enjoy things about modern, you know, human life for all of its blemishes, then we have to use narrative to, to positive ends yeah. as opposed to, to um, violent ends. And likewise, as we evoked a few episodes back, that even the idea of democracy is, was sort of founded and developed upon a certain story of the nation or, or mm-hmm. a people. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of, it's not necessarily... Modern democracy. Modern democracy, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, I, and as I say every day to my students in Taiwan also, who is, is not forced to listen to me, um, uh, the, the, the idea that we live in democracies uh, is a lie that I resist every day. And I think that it's a dangerous narrative when people think mm. that by delegating your power to political parties or other people, you're living in a democracy. You're not. And I think the world could be better and more Bloom-like um, if, um, if uh, citizens uh, took it upon themselves to uh, think and act and help others as, as Bloom does all through this book. I, w- I guess I would support my case in another way, which is to say that I was struck by... Um, so we say, so we say, is this a pleasurable experience reading uh, Bloom's uh, use of all these narrative tricks and mm-hmm. phrases that he's essentially picked up through instruction, as it were, reading how to write books, you know, writing for dummies. So phrases like it was high time mm. to all intents and purposes as the age has it. I mean, you just what's almost, bread in the bone. <laughs> just times. things that your high school English teacher would cross circle in red pen <laughs> in and red throw pen. back at you. Um and I think amidst all of this pomposity and self-consciousness, two phrases really struck me. Um, and they're essentially um, appeals to Stephen. They're the, in the most simple language, one syllable words. The first one is when he's trying to get him to eat. Mm. And he says, try a bit. Mm-hmm. And then later he says, lean on me. And amidst all of this, I suppose, arrogance and and... Uh, insecurity about about words are just these two beautiful, mm. very simple 
um, very physical and tangible phrases that I think really ground ground the episode. Mm. I would just take it to a little bit of issue with some of the adjectives you just used, because I, I don't think there's arrogance and pomposity to this. I think there's definitely, as you said, self-consciousness. Mm, mm. And there's arrogance uh, and pomposity in it. Yes, mm. I, I mean, but I think there is, yes, no. I, I don't think, you're um, right, you're right. I, I think, in fact, the appearance of pomposity comes from the self-consciousness, sure. in fact, sure. because I think Bloom knows he's not quite, his, his let's say his, his, um, his articulation is not quite up to the level of thought that he mm. wants to he 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 wants to achieve he mm. wants to attain mm. and and I think that that pushes him towards this use of kind of of cliches mm. and um, and quite tortured sentences. Mm. Mm. Um, but what if anything can redeem this bad writing? Then? Well, I, something I really loved about Eumaeus. Um, it's actually something I loved about Eumaeus uh, in in the Odyssey that um, um, every time Eumaeus is referred to uh, in in the Odyssey, uh, Homer says, "Oh, my swineherd, Eumaeus! Mm. Oh, my swineherd!" A- as if he's stepping for just a millisecond <laughs> out of the story mm. a- and speaking either in his own voice, like "I love you, this you, you rascal swineherd," or um, uh, or that Odysseus himself steps into that moment and, and starts telling the story, "Oh, my swineherd." And of course, it's an epithet, like all the epithets were, which which oral um, mm. storytellers used to to buy time or to fill gaps in the or to help the, them remember or to help them remember. Story. And um, and and the mood of Eumaeus, I think, is one of the most successfully drawn yeah. and immersive in in Ulysses. Um, and I think maybe it gets to what you were saying before, Adam, that you really, if you if you step back, you can see, oh, this is this story, this third person narrative is written as if it was written by Leopold Bloom, mm-hmm. one of the characters in the story, mm-hmm. which is just a brilliant insight. Mm-hmm. And and it it takes me back to when I first read this when I was nineteen and. I, I just remember reading this and feeling, oh, I know what that's like. I just mm-hmm. come to know what that was mm-hmm. like. I kind of the moments after some great drunken brawl adventure, something really unexpected that took you out of yourself, a high emotional mm-hmm. moment. And then you come down and you may be with one other person in something kind of like a cozy little place. Mm-hmm. And you're like, what the hell just happened? What what did we just live through? And you're kind of deconstructing it and figuring yeah, it out. Yeah. And and you may ask in the in the mm-hmm. cabman shell, it captures it just mm-hmm. perfectly. It's a little mm-hmm. sordid, it's a little like hazy mm-hmm. and and but that intimacy yeah. of being with one other person. And yeah. and this is the only time all day long that Stephen drops his pretense, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not like he and Bloom become buddies because they they clearly don't see eye to eye on everything and they and they are very, very different people. Mm-hmm. But for the first time, because of Bloom, Stephen is actually himself yeah. for a moment, mm-hmm. and um, and so there is an intimacy there um, that I think is is really is really moving. And so even though I think this chapter can be kind of a pain in the ass to read, um, <laughs> I don't think so. the mood of it I love. I yeah. love the yeah, mood yeah. of that shelter after this you know crisis in the in the brothel and the smash chandelier and the brawl in the street with the British soldiers. Then you have this moment with just kind of just the two of them plus these windy sailors and Irish nationalists. But it's 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 the two of them finally mm-hmm. facing each other as real people. And I, I think it's a it's an astounding moment. I think it's a wonderful point, Lex, and I think it touches on the invitation Adam invited all of our listeners in the first episode to let the text work on them. Mm. And I don't think we've lost it necessarily, but so much of what we talk about here are the phrases and the themes and the very knotty intellectual questions. And it is important, especially as we move to Penelope, to pull back and just Mm. 
see how you feel reading it what what on a psychic mm. emotional um level how, how do you how do you feel re- reading the yeah, prose yeah, yeah and i think some of the most profound literary experiences for me are when the book evokes something like drags up something from yeah. from your past particularly things you haven't thought about for for a long time and maybe mm. i'm going to reveal more than i should at this point but the, re- rereading you may as this time it reminded me of two experiences one was in my late teens early 20s i was up at the edinburgh festival quite a lot um and there are certain pubs in edinburgh which open at 5 a.m in the morning because they were penny black for, the yeah, penny black, exactly mm. yeah, yeah and the atmosphere in those and you know i say mm. that um i said that with the caveat that you know because these are for people who work the night shift and they want to have a drink Mm. before going Mm. before going to bed Mm. and um you know a few of us kind of artsy types which kind of english as well (laughs) would rock into these uh hello chaps (laughs) (laughs) after like you know a night at the comedy clubs or things like that and you know just before going to bed and there was something about that atmosphere that we found in, yeah, the Penny Black, exactly. I, I couldn't remember the name, but it's mm. that. And that this evokes so well. Mm. The other one was when I was living in London back in the early 2000s, um, I would occasionally go to this nightclub called Slimelight, which is in um, in Islington. And it's an incredible, I assume it's still there. It's sort of, it's a monument on the goth industrial techno scene. Mm. Um, Were and, you an industrial techno goth in your um, Not not in my everyday life, but f- certain Saturdays <laughs> of the of the year I would be. And this this would this would run until um, um, from from about ten ten p.m. to seven a.m. Mm. You know, it was a private club technically, so you could bring your own booze and anything else you wanted to bring. And Ribena, exactly what I was thinking of. And Timber. at seven a.m. <laughs> Everyone would be kicked out, and this is in um, this is in Islington, right? Mm. So just outside, just by Angel Tube Station. So suddenly, seven a.m. every Sunday morning, this kind of sea of goths is kind of <laughs> unleashed, unleashed on <onto laughs> intellectual goths, and a lot of people went to uh, to Starbucks at that moment to kind of get a, get a coffee, just kind of allow the decompress. the night to decompress, you know, come down a little bit. Get a frappuccino, and a caramel frappuccino. Again, I was, and I honestly haven't thought about those those mornings in Starbucks for probably close oh, to yeah, fifteen yeah, years. Yeah. But reading Eumaeus, there was something in that sort of that post, sort of celebratory post party mm. post kind mm. of the vortex of um, a really kind of. Sometimes you just have to survive the night. You know? Yeah, 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 exactly. And I just, I'm just. Yeah, talking about the text working on you. I think those two, having those two experiences rise to the surface. I I just wanted to uh, also make the point that I think um, inviting people to experience art on a emotional level um, liberates it from from the academy or from the bookshelves in the sense that I think to to ask the question, what is art and who is art for? This is a nice way to answer it. And I think this is a question that Bloom is certainly thinking about um mm. in this or Joyce by way of Bloom is thinking about in this episode because there are several discussions throughout the episode um about uh who is art for um and this is a description of Bloom and it it goes he dealt being a bit of an artist in his spare time on the female form in general developmentally he had seen those Grecian statues perfectly developed as works of art in the National Museum. Marble could give the originals, shoulders, back, all the symmetry, whereas no photo could because it simply wasn't art in a word. And we, we hear Bloom being described as a potential poet <laughs> um, elsewhere and that he wrote his 
uh, first piece of verse at the age of 11. And so not only um, I think is Bloom as, as having the touch of the artist in him, um, showing us that really anyone uh, can can enjoy art. Mm. Maybe it's for instruction um, as opposed to, I suppose, more kind of intellectual pursuits. Um, but even people who aren't necessarily possibly as educated as Stephen can also then begin to think mm. about, um, make judgments about art. And that's what Bloom is doing. I mean, apart from looking at, he, did, he didn't mention, uh, maybe this is a divisive narrative. He didn't mention that he was in the museum looking to see if they had, bottoms or not <laughs> but for, for, i think it's a, it's a lovely it's a lovely testament to to the de- democratization of art that's happening in the 20th century because here is somebody who's trying to instruct himself on the works of shakespeare going to museum and coming up with his own judgments about what art and what is and is not mm. very well very well said yeah mm. it's true the 20th century was kind of the century of the autodidact right because it was the sort of the the first moment that sort of high culture was cracked open cracked open and was sort of popularized through the means of kind of mass media that we we talk about whether that be cinema whether that be the paperback book whether mm. that be latterly television mm. um it's let's some, not forget our friends at, at penguin classics who um well yeah exactly. made classic literature available for the masses and sure and i mean probably more people friends, now or our friends in france with the with the very cheap uh, classical editions. Oh, indeed, yeah. right, of yeah, course. The, 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 the push. The, well, it was yeah, the Pleiad originally was uh, Pleiad. Bizarrely, oh, now, right. because they yeah, cost yeah. about sixty euros mm. a volume, but originally that was founded on the mm. very same principles as um, as Penguin. Penguin. To sort mm. of, yeah. Mm. Um, Lex, I know you want to talk about Bloom's democracy. Uh, I mean, see, we can't we can't let the you know we can't we can't, can't have a chapter. So so excited about so, this. So so here, something I learned <laughs> so this morning, excited. thanks to um, a wonderful um, uh, modern trick called Control F. I actually looked to see how many times the word democracy appears in Ulysses, and up until this point in the book, it's appeared a total of zero times. <laughs> Is that yep. <laughs> and, and and yet in the Bloomcast, it's appeared probably about four hundred <laughs> thousand times. And we're about to see Ithaca is the is Control is F. the only uh, only place where the word democracy appears. I think in, a, in uh. the best in the best possible uh, one of the one of my favorite passages. But um, Bloom does not need to talk about democracy because my friends he enacts um, what the <laughs> life of the democratic he embodies mm. the the two eyedness, the kindness and curiosity and generosity. Um, that uh, I think Joyce believes, and I believe, uh, is the real heart of democracy, not political parties and elections, um, which often, as you've said, Alice, are, are tied to horrific narratives of, of national, mm. um, you know, rivalry, resentment, and ultimately oppression, oppression and violence. Um, what Bloom does in this moment in, in Eumaeus in the cabman shelter is gives as close. We we got his his. Um, uh, a short version of his political philosophy against the citizen. You know, he means mm-hmm. love, the opposite of hatred, mm-hmm. and and was exploding, using it in a negative sense to explode the one-eyedness of the Cyclops. Here, he gets a chance to... Um, he's, in, he's in a different posture. He's in the role of a, of a teacher and possible potential father figure to Stephen. And so... But he is very gently proposing in a positive tone of voice what he thinks um what he thinks is the way forward for for society i mentioned he, he mentioned so this is after the the um argument about irish nationalism and, and parnell and uh and he says uh you know every every 
uh, country, our own, distressful included, has the government it deserves, but with a little goodwill all around. It's all very fine to boast of mutual superiority, but what about mutual equality? I resent violence or intolerance in any shape or form. It never reaches anything or stops anything. A revolution must come on the due installments plan. Now, would that Vladimir Ilyich Lenin, who, who was who was in Zurich at the same time as Joyce, would would it that or even the, Vladimir Putin now oh, in Ukraine? Yeah. Would that the Bolsheviks and their and their intellectual descendants um, had read this idea of reform over over revolution? He said Bloom says it's a patent absurdity on the face of it to hate people because they live around the corner and speak another vernacular, so to speak. Stephen assents to this. He says memorable bloody bridge battle in Seven Minutes War. Stephen assented between Skinner's Alley and Orman Market. So this is like a famous street fight between two like, kind of rival gangs in, in Dublin. And it was completely absurd. Bloom then goes on to, um, in, in a more discreet tone of voice, to explode uh, the anti-Semitism, which we know would be such a huge part of the, of the century to come. Um, I can safely say history, not, not a vestige of truth that Jews you know, ruin the societies they live in. History, would you be surprised to learn, proves up to the hilt Spain decayed when the Inquisition hounded the Jews out, and England prospered when Cromwell, an uncommonly able ruffian who in other respects has much to answer for, imported them. Why? Because they are practical and proved to be so. Uh, and he says instead that the priest is the one who spells poverty. Spain, again, you saw in the war compared with go-ahead America. Turks, it's in the dogma. because because he, So he's saying this applies equally to Christians as to Muslims. Dogma is bad because, he says, if they didn't believe they'd go straight to heaven when they die, they'd try to live better. Mm. Uh, speaks mm. for itself, in my mm. opinion. Mm. And then, of course, not, not done yet, goes and proposes a comfortable, tidy-sized income, something in the neighborhood of 300 pounds per annum, which I looked up would be the equivalent of around 50,000 U.S. dollars today. That's the vital issue at stake, and it's feasible and would be provocative of friendlier intercourse between man and man. At least that's my idea for what it's worth. I call that patriotism. Mm, 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 I mean, mm. how, how, in how many ways is Leopold Bloom ahead of us? Not just, you know, prescient and, and, and mm. prophetic of the 20th century, but ahead of us here in the 21st century. From, from public transportation to public sanitation to animal cruelty, vegetarianism. vegetarianism. Um, you know, Leopold Bloom, I think, sets the course for, for a more democratic world. Does Stephen accept it? He is the younger Joyce, right? He's the younger alter ego of Joyce. If, if, and this is Declan Kybird's point on on this chapter, if if Stephen represents the immature Joyce mm-hmm. who was obsessed with his own freedom and independence to to write and create and um, get drunk and get drunk um, and not to take baths and not to <laughs> not to you know That's eat a to do that is a noticeable <laughs> um, then Bloom represents the mature. Um, Joyce, who even is more mature in some ways than James Joyce is himself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. In his um, tolerance and kindness um, to his own family. Mm-hmm. Um, and comes back to that George Saunders point again. Yeah, right, right, right. Very, very much, right. Yeah. Um, and and so I, I think that, that what you have here is not necessarily a meeting of the minds <laughs> between Stephen um, and, and Bloom, but rather... Um, a rapprochement, a dialogue in the truest sense of that word, where people speak in a non-judgmental way from the heart, share their their view on the world and are really listened to um, by by the person en face. And, and um, you know, Stephen is so is still so haunted and, and is mortifying his flesh, as we find out, mm-hmm. by not eating, by not bathing. 
Um, he's not ready for, for, I think, some of these deeper truths about community mm-hmm. that Bloom is, is, is putting forth, but he's essential. Like, without mm-hmm. Stephen, there is no novel, right? Without the artist, there is no Ulysses. And, and even, it, it, it's so lovely, and even um, for Bloom, without Stephen, without artists, I mean, what's, what I was struck by, I, I think, you know, the universal income is fantastic, but I was so struck by is that it includes even artists. And he makes this point, so so it was very funny. Even artists. Even <laughs> artists. What have you got against artists? Well, I, you know, it, it's, I mean, Stephen certainly says, I don't know if flippantly, but uh, he says when Bloom proposes, he says, count me out. Yeah, almost work. And, and he says, count me out. And then Bloom specifies. And then he says, I mean, of course, the other hasten to affirm work in the widest possible sense, also literary work, not merely for the kudos of the thing. So here's Bloom thinking about work. He's thinking about everything in the widest possible sense. Mm. And he's sharing um, the pie in the widest possible sense. Mm-hmm. Should we look at a few notable yes, before moving on to Ithaca? Um, I just had one very quick one, um, which I actually discovered and I made reference to in the in the um, recap. Was when I was editing Tom McCarthy's... Um, um, this uh, is Adam Sherlock's Holmesing. Well, I'm, I'm not actually. I'm asking our listeners to Sherlock Holmes it. Because... Oh. Um, so there's a moment where we're talking about, yeah, D.B. Murphy, um, which who is elsewhere referred to as W.B. Murphy, depending on the edition. In my edition, it's W.B. Yeah. In your edition, is mm-hmm. W.B., yeah. So in, in, Mine too. Um, so I suppose... Yeah, I think it is. No, in this, in so in the official Penguin Classics edition, I think it is WB. But in whatever edition Tom was reading from, it's been changed to DB. Now, bum bum bum. Why? <laughs> you know, this is, but this is not just a correction of a typo, right? Because a, a W da, and a D da, never da. really get confused. certainly not. Now, there's only one WB I can think of is WB Yates, and I know Lex, you have some some insight you into some the relationship. Not necessarily insight, but but I mean, the relationship between Yates and and Joyce is a very troubled one. Mm-hmm. Um, that they uh, sort of like um, you know Stephen and 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 Bloom in a sense they mutually recognize one another's um well in the case of 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 yates and joyce genius i'm Mm -hmm. not sure stephen recognizes bloom as a genius but bloom certainly does to stephen but but so count count me out yeah (laughs) joyce and joy but you know as i say stephen only opens up to one person in this whole book and it's bloom right so that that's not a coincidence either but yates and and joyce yates was the older man i think half about a half a generation older he had led this kind of irish revival Mm. um in the in the theater with with lady gregory joyce absolutely Hated. And, and Joyce hated it, right? He thought it was a lot of mumbo jumbo. This Celtic, you know, romanticism was was not uh, was you know looking backwards instead of forwards. So I think um, uh, Joyce certainly had had both respect and a lot of problems with Yeats, and um, I think we might presume vice versa. But I think maybe even for Joyce, it was too far to give this very you know odious uh, yarn spinner, <laughs> um, the sailor, the 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 letters WB, and maybe he changed it for that yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah, that, that seems that seems quite to tone it down. But if anybody does have send in your hypotheses, hypo- yes, other hypotheses or confirmation of Lex's hypotheses. Mm. Uh, yes, that, that he's doing that out of out of maybe deference to his deferential side as opposed to uh, his you know sticking sticking in the pen. Um, yes, I have Zum. Um, <laughs> I have. Well, this is just there are just funny moments um, when um, Leopold Bloom's name is misprinted mm-hmm. as L Boom, mm-hmm. and we also discover that his middle name is Paula. Yes, which is not a huge shock. <laughs> is, that, is, is, is that ever uh, generally a male name, Paula? Paula. Such a strange. It makes it makes perfect sense. 
But it does, considering particularly if you think of like the the gender bending of Cersei and the mm. sort of you know the and we have we also the have womanly side to Blue. We have never an, quite an, a lot in previous episodes. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, we also have an early, um, possibly a throwaway line, although it. it it struck me. Every time you say throwaway, I think of the... the <laughs> no, I know. It's life imitating art. You started thinking Paula. I was like, well, I like Paul. I'm a Paul. I'm, I'm the son of Paul. And I started like playing around in my mind. It's like Ulysses is infiltrating Getting my, inside. My it's working on you. It's working on Octopus you. Octopus-like. So this is um, uh, a description of Doctor. I suppose he's now a Doctor. Buck Mulligan. Um, <laughs> so Joyce writes, uh, or Bloom writes, he knows which side of his bread is buttered on Though in all probability, he never realised what it was to be without regular mm. meals. I thought it was a lovely, encapsulated um, saying of mm. essentially, mm. Uh, he's he's checking his privilege, as we'd say in, in contemporary mm. terms. He knows what side his bread is buttered on. He knows that he comes from a certain swath of society. But like many people, and frankly, most of us who check our privilege we actually don't know what it's like to not be privileged, mm-hmm. and it's just it's just a it's just a lovely example of how powerful <laughs> one sentence uh, can be um, in this novel, especially commentating on a character. And then the final notable is on page seven six seven in the Penguin edition. I think it's prefiguring Penelope because this uh, is the sentence: "An opening was all was wanted." Mm. <laughs> to to extend the um the kind of Kabbalistic um, tangents that uh, I think are, are, are fun, are fun um, to, to indulge in because certainly, you know, the, the mistakes of a genius, as we've learned, are, are volitional and are the portals to discovery, uh, as Stephen says in, in the yes, library. Yeah. Um, the, the letter. So this, this begins, Eumaeus begins the, the final three uh, episodes. And at least in, yeah, um, in my edition, maybe in all editions, um, the first chapter, the fourth chapter, and the sixteenth chapter have the big capital letter. Um, I think it's... this is another Sherlock Holmes thing, right? So, <laughs> and, just and so the, the opening, the opening lines, as we know, stately, plump Buck Mulligan. So you have S. Um, you have the Eclipso chapter four, where we meet Bloom, Mister Leopold Bloom. Um, oh yeah, good. Okay, yeah. so prepar- and then and then in the beginning of of of, of uh, Eumaeus, preparatory to anything with a capital P. Um, Gifford uh, of the annotated uh, James Joyce points out that there is some uh, recall of Joyce's um, uh, Joyce's Jesuit education, the S, the M and the P, uh, that these are the three parts of a, of a logical syllogism, the subject, the middle and the predicate, uh, which is the hidden logic that uh, comes through from Aristotle through Thomas Aquinas into uh, into Joyce, uh, the, the young Joyce, but of course also is the three um uh, consciousnesses of the book S stately pump S being Stephen M being Molly and P being perhaps Poldy uh, and why is that well that Stephen in the first three chapters is in his own mind so he's the kind of reigning uh, consciousness and, and obsession uh, of his own mind um, mm-hmm. M so this would be the middle section of the book, the long middle section. Bloom is, of course, fixated on nobody more than his wife, Molly. And then finally, the last chapter um, is uh, Molly ruminating on her husband, who, of course, she doesn't call Leopold. She calls Poldy. So the S, the M and the P there have have maybe um, 
a secret meaning. He even observes the stately has S E and Y in it, and you reverse it, and you get yes as the final as the final. Okay, no, I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. This is this is this is again Matthew. That's why I jump off the tree. This is, this is again this is again in Matthew Matthew Bevis uh, James Joyce Quarterly 2007. You can take it up with him. But I will say I will say the boom. Just to our right? listeners, Lex is sitting here with a tinfoil hat on. Exactly, right? exactly. So the the, the, the um, he looks for pennies outside in the sand. <laughs> outside the sand. Um, I'd be right at home in the cabman shelter. Um, so he he the misprint in in the in the paper L Boom, um, and this is uh, Blamier suggests that the L that's missing from the name Bloom reappears elsewhere in the book in Martha Clifford's letter. I do not like that other world where she means to say word and says world instead, um, which of course is also Bloom's part of Bloom's credo: uh, not to live for another world, not to live for the promise of heaven, but to live in the here and now. And Boom, of course, uh, also might evoke the shout in the street. Uh, which is Stephen's definition of of God um, in uh, in episode two. So El Boom S M P, and keeping the academics busy for centuries. Keep, take, it, take, take it take it for what you will. My my last my last little noticeable though, um, I love the bit at the end where they reveal their taste in music, mm-hmm. and it's something that they really share. Maybe the thing that they most obviously um, share is a love of music. Um, and Stephen starts singing. Mm. Actually, on the way home, he can barely walk, but he's he sings in German. Um, uh, to Bloom and, and uh, which Bloom uh, adores and uh, and and Bloom mentions his sort of favorites which include Mozart uh, and Mendelssohn he makes a, apparently according to Blamier's a horrific mistake in thinking that a, a famous song that has the line Protestant in it was part of the Protestant liturgy which you know it shows that he has these half-formed ideas about culture and and then um, Stephen replies by his his favor for Elizabethan you know uh, early Baroque uh, music uh, of Bird, Tompkins, uh, lutes, and and so um, uh, I think it's Kybert or, or possibly Blamier's points that this is sort of the, the middle brow versus the high brow, and of course you think about what role do novels play in culture? Yeah. It's totally fine mm-hmm. that you don't that you read Ulysses you out there and you don't have reference books next to you. You read it for fun and and maybe to spend some time with these characters and other people like the three nerds around this table are, are diving into every companion mm-hmm. book and mm-hmm. these things are not antithetical um, they're complementary in a, in a deep way and I think that's what mm-hmm. um, Julius wants to say through through Bloom in this episode that the, the life of the artist is possible the life of democracy is possible even if artists don't always like being told what to do in a community they're necessary to that community mm-hmm. um, and uh, yeah and, mm-hmm. e- and even if one practices being an artist and and even if the product isn't that good art mm. in a society is crucial to make the society function mm. oh and the very last thing actually the very last thing <laughs> I, I had to say is for some reason i've been listening to the, to the to the beatles a lot the ultimate kind of meeting of highbrow and middlebrow um in 20th century culture and um i can't help uh when steven's talking in this episode it just reminds me so much of which one of the four beatles do you think steven steven is the the closest to the trouble is I've seen your notes. So okay. I'm not, I'm not going to <laughs> Fair enough. So I put in my notes that he just reminds me irrevocably of George Harrison. Why? Um, number mm-hmm. one, I think mm-hmm. I was, I was, I had the picture in my mind of, of George Harrison and and the, the actor from 1967, which of course was when the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper. George uh, um, um, Strick, uh, the director, directed um, uh, a version of it, maybe the most famous film version of Ulysses and a young actor named Maurice Horev, uh, who had that same kind of Beatle haircut and kind of slightly, you know, high cheekbones. 
And and then I sort of thought more. I was like, wait a second, maybe George Harrison is Stephen Dedalus. Um, you know, they're both metaphysical, kind of inscrutable riddlers. They're skeptical of you all. You saying kind this of... to Adam after coming down from a, <laughs> exactly. a long like, night? I think they are the same person. So if anyone has ever seen Stephen Dedalus and George Harrison in the same room, um, you can uh, you can say no. But which I think... makes George Martin Leopold Bloom? George Martin would be very well. I took a quite more. He's more of like the Professor McHugh character. Okay. I would have put Paul. His Paul McCartney is the one who is playing the older brother to George and who George yeah, yeah, yeah. rejects this kind of older mm. older kind of family figure and Paul is like the let's all get along community and that's definitely a Paul Blue. Okay. That's a blue. So there you go. Let's move to Ithaca. Yes. <laughs> How? You ski- <laughs> <laughs> An opening was We're required. <laughs> An opening was required. How do Stephen and Bloom end their day? By walking together through the city in which they discover mutual loves and also points of disagreement. What happens at number seven, Eccles Street? Bloom, keyless, must hatch a stratagem, as Odysseus had done to enter his palace disguised as a menial servant. Bloom hops the wall of number seven, lets the pair enter by the garden door. What is there Nostos? <laughs> Nostos to the Greeks, a homecoming from adventures at sea to recover one's hearth and importantly one's status in the home is achieved for Bloom by serving in a true, truly hospitable way a cup of cocoa in two identical um, mugs, giving up his favorite mug for um, two mugs that would resemble and be mutually equal. We've all experienced that one before. Um, he displays his xenia, the, the Greek mm-hmm. uh, hospitality, um, by giving Stephen also the best cream that he was saving for the morning. Stephen Dedalus drinks and rests. Um, what does Bloom offer Stephen? Well, encouraged by Stephen's vitality, fearful for his potentially wasted talent, hoping for Italian lessons for his wife Molly, possibly to launch his singing career as a society um, entertainer, and even possibly that Stephen potentially might fall in love with Bloom's daughter, Millie, uh, Bloom offers uh, to stay the night. Does Stephen accept? And here I quote, promptly, inexplicably, with amicability, gratefully, it was declined. <laughs> <laughs> what counterproposals were alternately advanced, accepted, modified, declined, restated in other terms, reaccepted, ratified, reconfirmed? To inaugurate a prearranged course of Italian instruction, place the residence of the instructed. To inaugurate a course of vocal instruction, place the residence of the instructress. To inaugurate a series of static, semi static, and peripatetic intellectual dialogues, places the residence of both speakers, if both speakers are resident in the same place, the ship, hotel, and tavern. Sixth Lower Abbey Street, West and East Connery proprietors, or probably W and E Connery proprietors, the National Library of Ireland, 10 Kildare Street, the National Maternity Hospital, 2930 and 31 Hollis Street, a public garden, the vicinity of a place of worship, a conjunction of two or more public thoroughfares, the point of bisection of a right line drawn between their residences, if both speakers were resident in different places. Does Stephen accept? No. Does he accept the counterproposals, potentially? Why am I asking questions when I already know the answers? Well, Lex, (laughs) this is what the Catholics called catechism, a method of guiding students 
from falsehood to truth developed in the late Middle Ages and continued down to Joyce's time as a young student of Clongo's Wood College for Boys mm -hmm. in the late 19th century. Is it stilted? Yes. Is it a bit absurd? Yes. Does it bear some potentially hidden philosophical truths? Yes. That's what James Joyce wanted us <laughs> to wonder at. Um, but why? Why catechism? Well, this is what we might get into um, after the recap finishes, which is about to. How does all this end? <laughs> does it end? <laughs> uh, Stephen and Bloom, uh, Stephen with an ash plant, Bloom with his candle, uh, lead the way out the front door where they commune as men sometimes do, peeing side by side, looking up at the stars. Stephen takes his leave. Bloom goes back into his living room, thumbs through his books, fantasizes about his future as a country gentleman, a fantasy that he indulges in before bed, goes into the bedroom, lies next to Molly, sleepily recounts in an abridged fashion the events of his day, uh, and then kisses her on the mellow smellow melons um, of her rear end, lying head to toe and toe to head in the bed. Bloom drifts into a slumber. Is my recap finished? Well, happily for our listeners, it is. Can I add two questions to the final recap? Should Adam and Lex have spoken about the, what we plan to do in this episode and therefore not use the same silly joke <laughs> in Adam's introduction and Lex's recap? Yes. yes, they probably should. Does that nevertheless prove to be quite charming, meaning that after recording probably about 20 hours of these things, that our great minds have finally come Converged. together? I would say so. Our <laughs> listeners will tell us. But um, like Stephen wonderful. and Bloom, we're on the same train of thought. Ah. Um, where do we go from here? <laughs> um Alice, question. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, we should do all of we should do all of this by question and answer. Yes, a question and answer <laughs> okay. to, to to guide you from falsehood into yeah, truth. Yeah, just do how we've done every episode. <laughs> Actually, exactly. You need to guide us from falsehood into truth on the matter of the tennis ball. Okay. So um, long ago, you you told us that uh, one way of thinking about Ulysses is Joyce throwing a tennis ball up in the air that Samuel Beckett, his protege, yes. um, hits. Um, what do you think of that now? Well, so in addition to uh, my thoughts on Eumaeus, it. <laughs> Ithaca really um, removed some of the charm that I felt first encountering Beckett in, in a really sad way because what, um, like many Beckettians, is one of my favourite um, novels, if we can call it that. And what in... is? <laughs> what is? What? Well, yeah. What is? What? What? Yeah. The novel. <laughs> Third base. Third base. More <laughs> derrière. Um, <laughs> So in what, um, uh, who constantly kind of attempts to, to, to comfort himself by constructing um, logically complete and correct mental systems. And there are these very long famous lists and series and combinations and permutations. One of the most famous and one of the most funny is um, a rat or other small animal eats a consecrated wafer. One, does he ingest the real body or does he not? <laughs> Two, if he does not, what has become of it? Three, if he does, what is to be done with him? Mm. So, I <laughs> mean, wonderful. it is brilliant. It is brilliant, and and you can see how their 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 Catholicism is 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 informing both of their work, but it's also very much picking up <laughs> uh, at the end of Ithaca. Mm. And if you want to see um, 
really the apotheosis or the denouement, if you like, um, of this permutations, combinations. Um, I would direct anyone who's brave enough to watch um, Beckett's very late German TV play called Quadrat 1 and 2. It's on mm. YouTube from 1981. Uh, and you'll see <laughs> where this is going. <laughs> what happens to the rat? Does he does he become Pope? <laughs> you mean the consecrated body of Christ? Tune in next week. So are you going to rework the metaphor? Joyce throws up the tennis ball, hits the tennis ball. Beckett just chases after it. Yeah, like, like a, a dog. Ball boy. Like a dog. <laughs> like a dog. Yeah. Like a rat in a wafer. Yeah. In other words, um, I think in that in that original. I mean, I, I had said that uh, having not read the book, so maybe it was slightly glib. Um, <laughs> but and and you know, in that in that image, it's almost um, Beckett gets the winning shot. If you like, he's the one that kicks out of the park mm. and get. And I spent a lot of time with Beckett. Um, and now that we're getting to the end of this book, I actually think Beck. I mean, Joyce is the one who who is is making all the mm. really radical moves. Mm-hmm. I mean, Beckett really. It's like he's you know we talked about the the work consuming itself in the last episode, the 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 snake eating its tail. Beckett uses everything very enthusiastically mm. that Joyce has done, and of course creates some of his own ideas. Uh, in original ways but it, it seems to me that Joyce is the one who's who's um, more innovative it's, it's, astonishing. it's astonishing how I'm having a re-read- bit of a crisis <laughs> <laughs> live on the air but rereading this book and maybe it's just because we spent so much time with it but realizing how much of some of the best of 20th and 21st century novel writing almost exists as footnotes to Ulysses yeah. is kind of terrifying about, yeah. you know, just, yeah. and, and maybe maybe in a way sort of what people often say about Shakespeare, it's like, was it because he was, uh, because of his genius or was it just because of the kind of the cultural space mm. that he occupied? And in truth, probably both. I think Ulysses probably had that. It had such an impact that anyone who w- wanting to write anything innovative mm. post-Ulysses almost had to do it sort of in response. Well, to, in part because it's it's sc- so schematic in its experimentation. Mm-hmm. So in this particular case, this is he's only, I mean, what is only departing from only one device in one episode of one part of a hundred right. huge yeah, yeah, yeah. novel. Mm-hmm. So there's, I mean, you could, you could yeah. do it with any of it. Mm. Yeah. And I will come on in a moment actually to speak about another writer who again <laughs> takes one element and and runs yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah. But what what did you guys feel? How did you to use your kind of phenomenological question before? How did this? How did reading Ithaca make you guys feel? Love it. I loved it. Mm. I was sitting on the floor of my flat, uh, exclaiming out loud with delight. <laughs> I thought it was so delightful. And just as you were getting um, desensitized, because I think that what. It's like any time something that formally it hits you and it, and it really does hit you and then you you start to get lulled into it and then he and then he would invert again so I mean I, I can't exactly remember where it was but in other words that it's the the questions are short short and there are these long funny answers and then just as you're getting lulled into it he flips it and has a really 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 long question and then a very short answer yeah. the cat <laughs> yeah and it's just it's just he is he is playing with he is playing with language. I think one thing that struck me this time was um, so almost the paradox of the episode, the sort of the attempt to exhaust the inexhaustible. Um, like the, the, I think one of the one of the uh, activities which is underway in Ithaca is to try try and give as complete a picture of what has gone on, what is going on, and what may go on as possible, mm. while also recognizing 
that that would actually be an infinite process, mm. in fact. And I think I think there's some there's something very playful about that while reading it this time. It's that Joyce is very clearly aware that sort of there is a selection going on here. And the you know it's which questions were asked and which questions were not asked, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, that was the, that was the thing that, that really struck me. This and time. well, those are all the questions um, that are hiding behind any narrative, right? Yeah, because yeah, to yeah. go back to what we were saying in, in the previous episode, when you're writing a narrative, you're, you're asking yourselves questions and you're making decisions about what to include and what to exclude. And so he's saying, what if we include all of the possibilities? What if we try and show the whole truth? Mm. And it feels almost quite mechanical because he's. It, it is a permutation essentially. Mm-hmm. It is. It is mathematical and scientific in its approach. And religious. I mean, what one of the mm. things that Kybert um, writes about about this chapter is how there is both a deeply scientific voice, mm-hmm. but done in the, this religious form, and with almost these moments mm. of of revelation. I mean, Blamers, who who um, writes the, the New Bloomsday book. Um, was probably also sitting on the floor in the 1960s <laughs> in, in in England, equally delighted, but for totally different reasons than 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 you or I were, Alice. He he talks about the risen Stephen Christ with his wounded hand shaking legs and bruised side is taken into every man Bloom's house. Once more, the comic spirit asserts itself in what is a profoundly significant experiment in literary form and style. The techniques of formal logic, scholastic deduction, and scientific analysis are all exploited so as to show the whole world transfigured in the light of a new revelation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is someone who would go on to, to, to write about theology, Christian theology, and he was a Christian. And it shows you that, you know, I read this in this kind of part Borges, part Vonnegut. Yeah. And those were the, my two authors I was reading at this point mm-hmm. when I was reading Ulysses for the first time. And I just loved, I loved all of these digressions. I loved you, you full of these little surprises. Joyce's is both st- stretching out into the infinite and getting into the mm-hmm. finely, you know, granular details. And it's, it's funny. It's warm. Mm-hmm. You don't know. You, it's actually suspenseful yeah. in a way that it will Stephen stay. Will he not stay? What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, this is, it, it was but by reputation Joyce's favorite chapter to write and, really? and certainly yeah. yeah and certainly was was yeah. was mine to, to read mm-hmm. moving on to another question mm-hmm. Adam Biles what happens to this episode if we follow the money well um I've it's something I've been interested in since the very beginning of this reading particularly is the sort of the constant reference to references to money and debt mm. throughout the book from both Stephen and and Bloom you know they are I suppose, obviously, is to do with their uh, their positions in society, their their uh, financial security, or otherwise. But this idea of debt and credit, mm. um, I mean, we had the reference in in Eumaeus to um, to, to the revolution, um, you know, on the instalment plan, um, and it seems to be something not only that preoccupies them on a very material level, but almost on a philosophical level. And in this chapter, we get. Um, a page. It's on uh, in the Penguin edition. It's on page eight hundred thirty-six, which is essentially a page of double-entry accounting. So where Bloom does his accounts for the day, which we can assume I think he does every day, and um, so he lists on the left of the page. It says compile the budget for sixteenth of June, nineteen ninety-four. On the left he lists debit. On the right he lists credit. Uh, the debit being much longer than um, the credit. Everything in uh, pounds, shillings, and pence. Um, from a poor kidney to a copy of the Freeman's Journal to um, dinner and gratification on the debit side. On the credit side, we have cash in hand. We have commission received, what you got from the um, 
the Freeman's Journal, and we have the the, the loan uh, repaid from Stephen Daedalus. Um, now, there's a couple of things to say about this. Firstly, um, one thing that people have spent a lot of time puzzling over is the inaccuracies mm. to this, right? Uh, so, for example, where are the 11 shillings that he just spent in Bella Cohen's brothel um, a few hours earlier? Um, I, you know, because Cersei is such a sort of a maelstrom of a chapter, perhaps those 11 shillings were never spent. Or is Bloom hiding it because maybe Molly's going to look mm. at the accounts? But there's so that there are certainly holes. There are certainly errors in um in these budgets. And so one thing, uh, so this is Patrick Hastings citing a writer called Mark Osteen. Um, and he says that Mark Osteen's idea is that Joyce is essentially prompting the reader to become the bookkeeper. So it's as if Joyce is teasing us saying, this isn't quite right, is it? Well, go on, reread the book and fix it for me. <laughs> so this is sort of the the errors as all errors, as you know, we, we referenced already in this episode. Uh, you know, the, the, the genius, um, genius's errors are- the Volitional. Two. Exactly. Um, so that is that is one one potential um, one potential uh, reading of it, um, and he also goes on to say, like Bloom's budget, the reader's budget will leave gaps. The book can never be fully balanced or ended because perfect balance would mark the end of bookkeeping, the end of reading. Good point. Um, which I Ooh, think la, la. Is, is rather lovely. But the one thing it made me think of um, was a book published in the mid seventies by the British avant garde writer B. S. Johnson, um, a writer and um, and filmmaker. And this is a book called Christy Mowry's Own Double Entry, um, which I have here. Actually, I brought in my copy of it, mm. if either of you wanted to peruse mm. it. Um, where essentially the um, Christy Mowry is a kind of disaffected young guy who, after taking an accounting course, decides to apply the principles of double entry bookkeeping to his own life. So he credits himself against society. Um, to settle his personal account with society. Exactly. And what happens in this book, and one thing oh, that should wow. be said is that B.S. Johnson was an enormous admirer of Joyce, as <sighs> I think most avant-garde writers, particularly in the Anglo-sphere, were after after Ulysses. And in fact, B.S. Johnson described Joyce as the Einstein of the novel, which I think is um, <laughs> is, a, is a perfect encapsulation of a lot of what we've been, we've been discussing. So he would have been aware of this page. And one thing that happens in, in Christy Mowry's own double entry is very quickly things escalate. So essentially, if there is a moral to this story, it's if you are determined to enact, you know, to enact, to, uh, to, sort of, to, to, to retrieve credit from society, then this is something which is which is going to spiral. And, you know, I'm. I don't think it's really a spoiler to say that the, sort of the, the final um, the final attempt to uh, to settle his debts involves Christy Mowry trying to blow up the Houses of Parliament <laughs> and kill all of the MPs and so like a modern day Guy Fawkes. Um, so this put me in mind. This made us think. Made me think again of Bloom and you know what what this says about Bloom that despite what he's been through this day, some of it good, a lot of it bad. Uh, including, let us not forget, another man sleeping with his wife in his own bed. Bloom's accounts still come up even. Um, and I think this firstly tells us a lot about Bloom's character, that after a day like this, uh, he is able to top things up and say, you know, even Stevens. Wash his hand with some lemon soup. Um, but I think another thing it should make us reflect upon is what has changed. And this is a very material representation of the fact that nothing objectively has changed for mm. Bloom mm. at this point. And, you know, that whether that be the money in his pocket, whether that be, you know, the physical relationship he has with Molly. And again, spoiler alert, but like what we're not going to find in Penelope 
is the most spectacular sex scene in all of literature. This doesn't end with... Keep, um, keep listening, though. <laughs> keep listening. Just in case. Just in case. But this doesn't end with, with, with Bloom and Molly, you know, having the best sex of their lives. But what has changed subjectively? Perhaps we're not quite in a position to to answer this question yet. But I'd like to come back to what we've talked about a lot during these episodes as the potential of viewing Ulysses as a kind of anti-Odyssey. Um, and I don't think it's quite that what uh, that we the, that conclusion that we come to at this point. But I think there's this, almost this idea of there being an objective stasis to Bloom's life, an objective stasis to his accounts, an objective stasis to his interactions with Molly, but a kind of inner reconfiguring. There has the events of June 16th, 1904 have done something mm. to change the way Bloom perceives the relationship mm. between the different elements of his life, the different constellations in his life. And I think constellations is something which mm. I know Lex, you want to talk about later, mm. and it's mm. something which comes up repeatedly um, in this episode. So I just think that's there's some there's a there's a lot to be to be gleaned from from this. And I think that this this gives us yeah an insight into possibly the um yeah, what has changed and what hasn't. But you also wanted today. to talk about it, right, Adam, in terms of um double entry counting as an early device of capitalism. Um I mean that wasn't that wasn't my particular interest. Oh. Lex, you brought put that up when we discussing it. Well, before. just that it was a hugely important feature of modern life. You yeah. know, without double entry counting, there's there's no modern bourgeois city life that, mm-hmm. that and it's it's mm-hmm. one of those things that Joyce is clearly aware of. He yeah. he's he takes us into the plumbing mm-hmm. as or you know, as we as we noticed, he takes us um you know, all through the, the streets and the sewers and you know, he he is aware in, in the most um fine detail um what makes the city tick, what makes the city work. But I, I kinda wanna answer the question you just asked, Adam, whether mm-hmm. You know what? What has changed in in Bloom's uh, in Bloom's attitude, um, and do we see in those changes a potential seed of reconciliation? We we know he's been preoccupied with one thing all day, which is Molly and uh, Molly's affair. Um, this a chance to play a father figure to Stephen is um, not something he sets out to do. But something he opportunistically um, steps in to to do essentially a, a good deed um, mm-hmm. on both, uh, I think, moral and and even aesthetic grounds because he sees that that Stephen's a genius and and is potentially um, lost his way. But I think his his overriding question he wants to resolve is how can he and his wife um, reconcile? And right before he goes into bed and and begins chatting with Molly, he considers leaving. He's like, what if I left this house? He even thinks before he gets back to him, what if she's left? Mm. So he's still he's entertaining the potential for for a real dissolution of of, mm. of their marriage, which would be heartbreaking to him. And then he starts thinking through Molly's potential lovers. Twenty five. He lists twenty five, including Simon Dedalus. So some are clearly just ridiculous. But but um, and he thinks through it not as a way of, of stoking fires of resentment or jealousy, but actually putting Boylan in a context and seeing that, that this affair with Boylan is not really about Boylan and not about Boylan replacing him, but about a need that Molly has in her life that mm-hmm. has opened since the death of their of their infant son and that that's what they need to get mm-hmm. to address, mm-hmm. right? And it's not about whether he can, you know, punish Boylan. And he sort of rules out the mm-hmm. violence that is at the core of these chapters in the Odyssey, where where 
um, Odysseus and Telemachus, the father and son, are reconciled and together wreak this, you know, mm. this this pornographic mm. amount of violence mm. um, described by Homer in, in, in intense the, on, detail on the suitors, on the suitors, yeah. on the suitors who had been, you know, polluting his his home. And and as you said, Adam, this is this is in that sense an anti Odyssey, mm-hmm. where rather than ending with violence and revenge and kind of conquering his bed and taking back his wife and and um, you know and, and unmanning his rival, it's about responsibility and understanding the interconnectedness at the heart of these problems, the interconnectedness of the death of their son with her current uh, estrangement. And the interconnectedness of Boylan's presence in that bed with his own actions. Mm-hmm. And he does what I think far too few of us learn how to do in our lives, which is not to hate the people who wrong you, mm-hmm. but to understand what you've done also to contribute to that situation where mm-hmm. you feel wronged. Mm-hmm. And by taking responsibility, I think, Adam, in, in a deeper sense, he is setting himself on the path um, mm-hmm. to reconcile with Molly. And I think Joyce is doing this at a society-wide level, um, in the sense that um, not only could, could we ask uh, what happens if we follow the money, but what happens if we follow the water mm. or what happens if we follow the manufactured meat tin, for example. Mm, yeah. And so Plum tree. Um, to this point, exactly this point, Lex, about interdependence and origins, what I was really struck by was the question of the water, did it flow? The answer, yes, from Roundwood Reservoir in the county of Wicklow, and the, the whole path is described through relieving tanks, reservoirs, and so on. We get the same um, following of the supply chain and the creation of the manufactured meat tin. We find out who manufactured it, George Plumtree at 23 Merchants Quay, Dublin, and then who put it in, who put the meat in the tin, somebody called Joseph P. Nanetti. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I was talking last time about this this closed system and, and there's no, essentially, for us, we find ourselves in the 21st century of there's no way out um, of all these supply chains, of all these pathways, um, of the interdependence of, of humanity and Joyce, through permutations um, and through uh, his, his prose here, is showing us and giving us a kind of portal into this. And I think if you're interested to see a more modern version of this, there's a brilliant reporter at large piece by at the time referred to as William McKibben who's now known as Bill McKibben uh, from the New Yorker who similarly um, I mean again so much later here in in 86 1986 was curious about the energy um, for his local flat in New York and also the disposal of waste and that kind of inquiry led him to the Hudson Bay it led him to Brazil it led him to a to a mine in Arizona so it's just about essentially all of us trying to figure out where all of the things that we're using and all of the resources that we're using, where they actually come from and who is implicated in their creation. That calls to mind, um, of course, last week, a, our episode with uh, Pete Buttigieg reading mm. um, From Oxen of the Sun um, was published. And when I put that on Twitter, someone replied with a quote from uh, Pete, Secretary Pete, and I, I hadn't seen this quote. I, it wasn't um, sourced, so I can't say where it came from. But apparently, at some point, he has said, "Ulysses, among many other things, of course, is a book about infrastructure." infrastructure. Yeah. yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, right. And what you're saying, us about the the infrastructure of of our lives, and in the deepest the sense, invisible today, it's mm. in the invisible infrastructure of our lives, and and what what, what makes and, and yes, tra- and untraceable, basically, un- untraceable, and therefore disempowering, and sure. that, that we're in the hands of of these of these larger, yeah. often corporate, you know, forces. To flip that around, Joyce is writing in the voice of an omniscient, um, 
all observing um, divine or near divine narrator who can on the one hand say exactly what's in Bloom's drawer mm-hmm. and also where mm-hmm. the constellations are in the mm-hmm. sky mm-hmm. And, and the mathematical relationship of their ages and trace the water um, mm-hmm. uh, you know through through the tap and and so it's the infrastructure of the the city of the story and ultimately of the universe that is is the subject of of Ithaca which is why it must have been so much fun to write and mm-hmm. to and why for me it's so much fun to read yeah. is that you you're getting the most intimate moment in the book in a sense mm-hmm. right um whether Stephen will stay or go and whether Molly how will Molly take Bloom back in in her bed but there's not a line of dialogue mm-hmm. in this it's yeah, entirely yeah. written from yeah, yeah. the god's eye perspective which in sense makes it warmer and more mm. kind of silly and playful mm. and humane um that the form and 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 the action uh, are in this in this funny counterpoint i i i can't say enough i can read this novel uh and read this this chapter over and over again and, and will hopefully for yeah. the rest of my days yeah. so before we end ithaca um what what do you guys think of of this as the climax of the book james joyce apparently thought this would be the last episode before he then was inspired mm. to write write Penelope, mm. so he thought this was going to be the end. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what kind of ending is this when it comes to the our main characters? Why does Stephen leave? What do we make of that? Um, what do we make of Molly and Bloom's moment together at the end? What What did you guys make of this as the as the kind of climax of the book? Um, a few things. I think one thing that becomes apparent at this chapter. And I, I think it is, is said explicitly, actually, at the beginning of Ithaca, that Stephen and Bloom are walking in parallel. And they are walking in parallel, but the thing about walking on parallel lines is that they never intersect. And perhaps that's Joyce underlining mm. an inherent truth about consciousness, is that these kind of two conscious bodies can swing very close to each other in their orbits for a certain time. Their gravitational pull can have an impact and effect a profound impact and effect on each other but perhaps they can never truly intersect um and whether that's something uh to be to be regretted or mourned i i i, I don't know but i my impression is that that is not what joyce would would want to argue and in fact almost perhaps there's it comes back to this uh idea about what has changed for for bloom and you know what has changed for stephen and like you said sort of several times over the last few episodes it's sort of what happens to Stephen afterwards is he goes off and writes Ulysses essentially um and so there's sort of there is there is value and there is something profound to be to be gained from sort of I guess a brief passage of of orbit you know a brief kind of two 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 sort of conscious bodies swinging close to each other in their orbits and having a having an effect on each other it's not mm. a denouement in any classical mm. sense mm. Uh, but did any of us expect that did mm. any of us want that mm. at this point I don't think Else, so. what do you think I was thinking um about our very first conversation of the end of the dead and how in the dead so this is um the end the final story um of uh Dubliners and it's the first time that Joyce really I suppose works through um creative creative problems in a, in a collected and published way um what does he do at the end of the day and I read it and I remember being very moved by it then um by the kind of um lyricism of the language he he pulls back from a, a domestic scene to people going to sleep um 
and pulls back above Dublin, mm-hmm. only really above Dublin, and it begins to snow. Here, he's pulling back um, above the whole world. And we're in a domestic scene, but we're floating above the domestic scene from a, from a universal mm. point of view. So for me, if you, if you put these two endings in, 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 in conversation, what's happened to Joyce, he's become more, I suppose, scientific, uh, in his in his regard and also more confident because he's looking at the world not he he believes I can not only transcend what's happening um in Dublin but I can actually transcend <laughs> the whole world of literature hmm. and so um I don't know if that's awesome. climax or not but uh he's certainly grown as a writer and how and how he's ready to look at the world what about you, Lex? Yeah, I, I, I think I entirely agree with with, um, with both of those um, beautiful points about about this um, this chapter. And I think both of them, both of your points, also go against some of the conventional wisdom. Often uh, you hear about this chapter. Oh, well, this is Joyce thwarting the reader's expectations by denying them a happy ending. Or that that in a sense that the reader wants Stephen to stay, wants Stephen to be healed. Uh, in the warm nostos of of uh, Seven Eccles Street, um, and that by leaving, Joyce is um, mm. subverting our expectations in a way that that is, uh, um, for many, kind of a sign that Joyce is is just playing with his readers and 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 not really trying to uh, um, give them any any greater sense of artistic truth. I, I disagree with that. And I think for the same reason that, that you guys do, because if, as Declan Kybird um, has, and Frank Budgen have, have tried to guide us to in their books on, on, on Ulysses, if this book is enacting a kind of a two-eyedness, a way of looking at life in, through, through many points of view that he saw at the beginning of this century, what the, what the, um, you know, horrific legacy of one-eyedness would be. This is, you know, written as a political refugee from the First World War. You know, and and um, anticipating that that would not be the end of of that particular story. Then, two-eyedness is the only way forward. And that there's, if you're two-eyed, there's never one ending, mm-hmm. right? And the way you said about the the double the double uh, uh, entry bookkeeping, mm-hmm. if Stephen had stayed in the house, that's the ending. Mm-hmm. But what Joyce wants to tell us is that the story goes on, mm. right? And that, and that the moment of connection that they share is the kind of moment that we can hope for in life, where there won't be in our lives a kind of a clean and easy resolution of our problems. That the best we can hope for is to be walking in parallel, right, with someone who we can bask in their consciousness and maybe connect. Maybe the lines do intersect briefly. If only for a short time. If exactly. only for a short yeah, yeah. time. And then... And then he goes again down down the lane, and Bloom, um, alone, feels. And this is what Joyce says: the cold of interstellar space, thousands of degrees below freezing point, or the absolute zero of Fahrenheit, centigrade, or Réaumur, the incipient intimations of proximate dawn. Mm-hmm. Another day will come, mm-hmm. right? June seventh. Mm-hmm. They're already into June seventeenth, nineteen o four. The story will continue, and I think um, we we can we can anticipate. For Stephen, what the next chapter of his story will mm. be, um, and that his frustrated artistic uh, ambitions will come finally to fruition in the form of the book that we're holding in our hands. Mm. Um, and for Bloom, he ends it with Molly, 
and with both of their consciousnesses maybe turning in, in a direction toward the other. Um, mm. There are no once and for all happy endings in life. I think this is the happiest ending that we could imagine, actually, mm. in this book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, noticeables. Um, so this is a noticeable and a correspondence that we wanted to save to the end. Um, this is from Rupert Stonehill from England, who's been a loyal listener. So hello, Rupert. Um, he writes, in episode one, I think Lex mentioned that Joyce was cha- tackling the big guns of literature. This is an argument we're making throughout. Namely, Shakespeare and Homer, yes, we would agree, rather than the likes of, let's say, Alexandra Pope. But I would disagree. Chosen at random, I would say. <laughs> not, not a premeditated choice. As F.R. Levis wrote, Pope has had bad luck when it comes to his reputation. In Ithaca, Rupert goes on, I think Joyce does figuratively tack Pope in reimagining a scene from the Dunciad. And then Rupert goes on to, to cite um, this particular quote from book two. So if anyone wants to look it up, it begins, first Osborne lead against the letter post. You can do a control F there. Um, <laughs> he ends his note saying, uh, both show off the paradic tone of the mock heroic, the laurel crown that previously has been placed on Stephen's head is won again just as the complimentary golden shower or golden bouquet is handed out in the Dunciad, Pope's imagination, like Joyce's, becomes a shower of filth. That's interesting. I, I was struck when reading the um, the pissing scene, and I and I hesitate to describe it as a pissing contest because much as, um, well, Lex said earlier, you know, uh, any, sorry to, to break this to, to anybody who's never been around little boys for, for a long time anyone like, who's never been a boy but or who has just never been a boy the uh, pissing contests at school uh quite uh, at least back back in the day were were quite a thing but what bloom and stephen do is not a contest they sort of piss in communion in, in tandem in tandem in harmony um but it did put me in mind of a, another pissing scene in literature um which is actually the end of rachel cusk's trilogy the so the end of the third book um kudos um, and I think this is interesting because I think potentially what Cusk is doing with these three novels will have a very significant impact on the evolution of the novel of the 21st century. I don't think it sort of serves much to compare it to the influence that Joyce had with Ulysses. But I think in the way that she deconstructs the novel and the questions the novel poses, both formal and moral, uh, with this trilogy, she's been doing, she's done something very, very interesting and very radical, which you see with the the, the books that are coming out, sort of essentially post mm. this trilogy, mm. has already had um, an enormous, um, enormous impact. It's an interesting point to say, you can't really tell a book's influence until things begin to respond to it. Yeah, 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 no, I think that's completely, mm. I think mm. that's completely true. Mm. Um, but so with this trilogy, for people who haven't read it, what essentially she's doing is writing kind of against or maybe around would be a better way to describe it what the 20th century novel became mm. um, and I guess what became post to Joyce and I think it's in, fair, in, in a sense it's a bit unfair to Joyce for all the many different reasons we've discussed that Joyce was in fact so far ahead mm. of um, so many other novelists of his time and of people who came after him but I think in significant part a big uh, the, the 20th century male anglophone novel could be described as kind of a pissing contest between a load of self-important men. And 
at the end of Kudos, we have the the narrator. Norman Mailer would fight you for saying something like that <laughs> in his He's presence. And, and <laughs> therefore prove my point. And therefore prove your point. Eloquently proving your point. Um, and so I think I just, uh, if we just got time, I will read very, very quickly the final uh, lines of um, of Kudos by Rachel Cast. Um, so she's just, the, the narrator has just walked across a beach and into the sea. This is a beach in Greece, I should add, um, if we're looking for sort of oh, la, la. Homeric, uh undertones or even overtones, uh, full of, um, of, of, of sunbathing men. One of them got to his feet, a huge burly man with a great curling black beard and a rounded stomach and thighs like hands. Slowly he walked down towards the water's edge, his white teeth faintly glimmering through his beard in a smile, his eyes fixed on mine. I looked back at him from my suspended distance, rising and falling. He came to a halt just where the waves broke and he stood there in his nakedness like a deity, resplendent and grinning. Then he grasped his thick penis and began to urinate into the water. <laughs> the flow came out so abundantly that it made a fat glittering jet, like a rope of gold he was casting into the sea. He looked at me with black eyes full of malevolent delight while the golden jet poured unceasingly oh. forth from him until it seemed impossible that he could contain any more. <laughs> The water bore me up, heaving, as if I lay on the breast of some sighing creature while the man emptied himself into its depths. Oh. I looked into his cruel, merry eyes and I waited for him to stop. Oh. <laughs> and as a lead-in... Thank I God think, we only have one episode of this book left. <laughs> as a lead-in to our final chapter, uh. um, I think that poses... Um, can, can I can I maybe just take you know take this idea of water and end on a on a on a slightly more ebullient um, <laughs> note as as um, uh, Bloom is boiling the water? Oh, um, I love is is this a question about what is water? And I'm I'm just oh, going to give just one or two words because so I I this is as I said before the only time where the where my favorite word um, appears in this book. What in water? Yeah, this is did so Bloom water lover Mm-mm. drawer of water water carrier. Returning to the range, admire its universality, mm-hmm. its democratic equality and constancy to its nature in seeking its own level, its vastness in the ocean of Mercator's projection, its unplumbed profundity in the Sundam trench of the Pacific exceeding 8,000 fathoms, oh. the restlessness of its waves and surface particles visiting in turn all points of its seaboard, the independence of its units, the variability of states at sea, its hydrostatic quiescence in calm, and he finishes, its ubiquity as constituting 90% of the human body, the noxiousness of its effluvia in lacustrine marshes, pestilential fens, faded flower water, stagnant pools in the waning moon. That's so beautiful. Um, So... Read that and think about what human life is about, and I think you'll. I think maybe we'll all get somewhere. Right, it's getting late, merci, um, merci. which means it's time for Lex and I to head off for a shave. Indeed, uh, following in Leopold Bloom's uh, argument that uh, nighttime is the best time to have a shave rather than in the morning. <laughs> Indeed, um, I'm never going back after that. Um, all that remains for us to say is take care. Happy reading. A très bientôt.